We are waiting upon the shore, water lapping at our feet. We look out to where the sky melts into the horizons of our world. This is a place for which we yearn, a place where we watch the world change. This shore is a meeting place, a departure point, a border, both an entry and an exit. The waters beyond these shores connect us to all places and divide us from them. Welcome to Shore, the first of three episodes exploring salt water. Let's wade together through ideas of home, distance, ancestry and interconnectedness. Over the next three episodes, we will explore salt water in all its forms. Hello and welcome to Canvas, FBI Radio's podcast, Unframing Art and Ideas. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands and waters on which this episode has been researched and recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. First, we chat with Emily McDaniels, a storyteller, curator and educator from the Kalari clan of the Wiradjuri Nation. We speak about connecting to country and navigating 60,000 years of storytelling along Warrain, the Sydney Harbour shoreline through her upcoming project. Water as a living entity. It remembers everyone who has ever come in contact with it. It remembers when it raised the sea levels in the last ice age. It remembers the coming of the British in 1788. It remembers Barangaroo rowing through its waters in Anawi. It remembers every ferry, every person. My name is Emily McDaniel. I am a Wiradjuri woman from the Kalari clan, the Lachlan River clan in central New South Wales. I've lived in Liverpool my whole life, Darug country, Gabrigal land, and I've had the pleasure of working on Eora Gadigal country for the last 10 years or more. I'm a storyteller and that can sometimes mean curating, educating, writing, but whatever it takes to share stories. This isn't the first work you've done around the harbour. Can you tell us a little bit about the work 4,000 Fish? It was a collaboration, a commission from Sydney Festival, and it ended up being a collaboration between myself, um, Uncle Stephen Russell, uh, Annie Phyllis Stewart, Lucy Simpson and Lily Madden. And essentially it took its inspiration from a narrative that was recorded by David Collins in the early years of the colony. He recorded that 4,000 fish were taken from the harbour in just one day. Now at the time, the actual population of New South Wales, Australia, wouldn't have exceeded 2,500. Right, So they literally took twice the amount that they would need to feed the entire population. That action says so much about how the colonial relationship to country developed and how now we're at this position where we're seeing mining companies mm. blow up 45,000-year significant mm. rock art sites. How did we get from the point of British arrival to that level of destruction? And for me, it's through little narratives like that. So the Harbour Walk will be a nine-kilometre walk from Parama, Piemont, 
following all of those beautiful, iconic coves until it reaches Woolloomooloo, you know, a really recognised Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community today. And, you know, we'd need another 60,000 years to tell 60,000 years worth of stories in Sydney. So we can't do that at the moment, but we can weave a story about the resilience, resistance and continuity of Aboriginal people and their relationship to the harbour. So we'll be doing that through public art, interpretation, storytelling um, and great collaborations with all of the institutions that we know and love, the MCA, Mm -hmm. the Opera House, the Botanic Gardens along the way. So it's a collaborative project and for me it's really heartening. It says that what is at the forefront of our consciousness at the moment in living in Sydney is that we need to connect with the true stories of this place. This is probably going to be a 15 to 20 year work, which is just so incredible. And to think about as well, you know, little kids who are, you know, four or five now, they're going to be adults and see the completion of this project. So what drew you to creating something like this and being a part of something like this? Yeah, it will be a long-term project. I was honoured to be uh, commissioned by the City of Sydney to author a storytelling report that identified the stories that Sydney siders should know about Aboriginal Sydney. As we walk country, whether it's our own or somebody else's, we understand that place through its stories. But when those stories aren't available to us, we don't know how to interact with the place and that's really where the harbour walk comes in. So for me it is an acknowledgement of country in its truest, most ancient form. You tread lightly, gently, knowing and recognising all the people that have walked that place before you. As you said, you need 60,000 years to tell 60,000 years of stories. So how do you refine those and choose which ones to share on that level? For me, the process was really led by walking that country as someone who's not from here, who's not Gadigal, but has the responsibility to acknowledge country. And at each site, I stopped and I thought, what stories should be told here? Mm -hmm. What stories do people not know? Perhaps one of those stories is about Pechegarang, a young Gadigal woman who was the first person to have these beautiful conversations with Lieutenant William Dawes in Gadigal language. And what she effectively did is she gifted her language to the future generations, Mm. 200 years ahead, to be able to revitalise that language and allow it to keep breathing. A significant story. That happened at what we call Dawes Point, but we should be calling it Tara in the first language of that site. Uh, One of the real intentions of the Harbour Walk is to get people using the Aboriginal names for sites. And I think it's really important to look to the past, to look to history. And as an Aboriginal woman, I'm used to wanting to talk about history, Mm -hmm. but having that conversation shut down real quick because it's assumed to be that it's laying blame, you know, that suddenly um, I'm blaming you for what Mm -hmm. has happened in the past. It's not about blame, it's about responsibility. Taking responsibility for the actions of your ancestors, whether you endorse them or not. And we feel like passive observers of history. Like, I didn't do it. Yeah. What am I meant to do about it? I can't change it. It's happened. Get, Get over, over it. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to get over it. Mm. I'm not. How can we move through this? And for me, it was through creating a shared action, a ceremony. 
that gave people something to do, okay? You know, this is history, but you can do something about it. So we invited 4,000 people over the, each day over the course of a month to come down to Barangaroo, uh, to Nawi Cove, where they would collect a little bucket of seawater and transport it into the cutaway and pour it into one of 4,000 fish moulds that we made out of recycled plastic. We'd then freeze those fish and people would be invited to take one of those frozen fish out to Nawi Cove and to take a procession down a long wharf and at the end would be an illuminated Nawi that had been designed by Uncle Stephen Russell. In that Nawi would be a beautiful Kuleman designed by Arnie Phyllis Stewart that held a flame and people would place that frozen fish onto the flame so it would slowly melt back to the harbour. So you were returning one of those 4,000 fish that never should have been taken in the first place. It empowered people to think about our past and to not feel powerless, to confront our histories and to say we have to take responsibility for country, whether it's our own or somebody else's, whether it's salt water or fresh water, we need to give it that respect to acknowledge that it has that memory. It's such a beautiful way to initiate the healing process as well with people and with the environment you know it's something that we don't I think we think about healing ourselves a lot but not about healing the world around us well you heal yourself through country mm. there's an inextricable connection acknowledging country isn't just a statement before a meeting you got to do something you got to earn it you got to demonstrate it and part of that is walking that country whether it's nine kilometers five kilometers three kilometers but walking that place, hearing those stories, letting them seep through your body and connect you to that place. It's about giving back and receiving at the same time. My name is Huda Afshar. I'm a visual artist and educator, and I'm originally from Iran. Uh, I've been living and making work in Australia since 2007. Today I'm going to talk about my work, Remain, um, a work that I made on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea in 2018, in close collaboration with Behrouz Bouchani, an Iranian-Kurdish writer, journalist and artist who was also detained on Manus Island by the Australian government for more than five years at the time of making the work. Remain is comprised of two different bodies of work. One is a series of portraits of the men that I worked with um, and the other is a two-channel video installation about the notion of death on the island and the experience of death and the loss of friends and the fear of dying uh, while in incarceration. What can art do in the face of atrocity? What can art do in the moment of crisis, a crisis as such? I was really confused about uh, the relationship between a um, liberal dem democratic society and the violence that we were witnessing at the time that was imposed on the bodies of those individuals. 
On the one hand, I was uh, puzzled about the system and how it can justify such level of um, brutality. And on the other, I was puzzled about the society's active blindness towards the treatment of the refugees and those who were waiting outside the borders, screaming and crying for help. I just knew that I had to do something about it, especially that I was really getting all the information through the writings of Behrouz Bouchani. And really all I knew was that um, I just have to get in contact with him and see if there's any way that I can help him with, with that. All my research and past work has been around the notion of, you know, uh, marginality and the, and the different categories of marginality and its relationship to the history of colonization and so on. So I could see a um, clear connection between the past dark history that the modern Australia is built up on and the way that they use those very similar strategies of suppressing the voices of um, the refugees and keeping them in, in the shadows. What was really important to me was to cross these borders and oceans and bring back the images of the real people who were there, the, the people that the Australian government kept telling the society that they're criminals, terrorists, dangerous people, and portrayed them as demons. The contrast between the horrors of the stories of the detention camps against the backdrop of that paradise-like island and the beautiful waters was something that I found most disturbing. Definitely in contrast with the um, society's idea of a prison, but that, that's basically an ideal holiday destination. But the fact that they were calling it a green hell was reflecting the level of psychological trauma. The question for me was that what does it take for someone to hate the color green? What does it take for someone to hate water, the beautiful ocean that is in front of them? That was Hoda Afshar chatting to us from London about her video work Remain, filmed in 2018 on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea, in collaboration with Kurdish-Iranian refugee Baruz Bouchani. Something that really resonated was this question, what can art do? And the power of artists and image makers to use their space and creativity to make visible the hidden and to reveal, in Hoda's case, the stories of the stateless men that have remained on the island following the closure of the infamous Immigration Detention Centre. Next, we speak about coastlines awash with histories. Australian Balinese artist and researcher Layla Stevens joined us to discuss her artwork, Their Sea is Always Hungry, a layered video work that's part feminist surf film, past ghost story. Ocean imagery has always run really strong in my work, and part of that is just because really like being able to document that space. And can you tell us a bit about your work, Their Sea is Always Hungry, the video work? It was a video that I made in 2018. It kind of explores through a series of landscapes the trace of 1965 to 66 anti-communist killings that happened in Bali uh, and across Indonesia. So it's really looking at this kind of 
latent history that's embedded in the landscape there and um, particularly focusing on these series of coastlines. The work itself, it's, it's guided through this narration between two voices that go back and forth and they're two women, one who's older and one who's younger. Yeah, these two voices kind of create this questioning narrative or dialogue around 1965 and how it's to be remembered today. It's still not officially recognised in history books in Indonesia, um, so there's still this kind of politicised amnesia around it. Um, so this was an event that, you know, they say up to 80,000 uh, Balinese were killed and then you know, up to a million across Indonesia itself. And the there in the title, who is that referring to? Oh, it's, um, it's a line that's actually lifted from... Uh, Wallace's uh, Malay Archipelago. Oh, So wow. I don't know if you're familiar, yeah, yeah, but yeah. It's, it's a... In natural history, it's quite a significant um, text because Wallace was sort of on the coattails of Darwin of trying to come up with his own theory of evolution, and he mapped this, what's now called the Wallace Line, that divides, um, you know, the flora and fauna of the world, and, and the line runs through... You know, it divides Bali from Lombok. Text actually reads more like a, a travel mm-hmm. narrative rather than a, a scientific text. Um, so he arrives in Bali and it's a really choppy and, and sort of rough ride to get there on the boat. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to Balinese fishermen um, and he's describing the way that they talk about the sea there. And, he's, and they say the sea is always hungry here. All the waves are very hungry and they try and catch what they can eat. So it's talking about the, one of the deepest straits in the world between Bali and Lombok. Engaging with the history, I knew that I was going to be more moving into this kind of representative space of exploring how that memory is kind of embedded in the landscape and I guess drawing from my previous practice around the moving image and photography. A, a lot of my attention in the, in the video sort of explores also how this kind of history has been in counterpoint to Bali's history as a island paradise and looking at points in the landscape that kind of hold that you know contestation between the two there's a kind of disparity between I guess traditional Balinese conception of the beach like the beach in Bali is sort of a place um, it's kind of a a liminal or a dangerous edge a place where you do really important significant ceremonies like there's a point in the cremation ceremony where you throw the ashes out into the ocean and uh, it's also a site where you do cleansing ceremonies but it's not a place of leisure or pleasure traditionally. I mean, now it is, of mm. course. Um, so I think that sort of shift in signification through Western tourism is really fascinating. And so it also shifts the value and the status of it. The before kind of these, you know, I call it the kind of surf tourism of the 1970s, mm-hmm. before that happened, the coastlines along the south and Bali is really just a series of poor fishing villages and they weren't in a place of power or... Um, and now that's been significantly remapped mm. through tourism and now um, these are incredible sites of value and places of tourist capital. So I, th- I just think it's really um, interesting how that came about and really shift how you think of the beach mm. in Bali. And so quickly too, really, when you think about it in a timeline. like Yeah, yeah. Mm, grew so quickly, so huge, you know. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But it's, you know, it's... Um, you know, both understandings of the beach are happening simultaneously.
You've been listening to Canvas, unframing art and ideas through the episode Shore, the first in a three-part cycle of episodes unfolding within the theme of salt water. You can listen back to past episodes and subscribe for more on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and connect with us via our Instagram at canvas underscore FBI 94.5. Tag us. Canvas is brought to you by myself, Aisha Ash, researchers Eleanor Zorowski and Jazz Money, audio editor and producer Kanika Kopalani, digital coordinator Isabella Sanasi and executive producer Anna Mae Kirk. The textural jingle bookending our episodes is by artist and musician Jackie DeLacy. Thank you to all the artists that have contributed art and ideas to this episode, both in and outside of the podcast. We are releasing lots of supporting info around each episode, including resources, extended interviews and more, so head to fbiradio.com canvas to dive in. We will hear an audio excerpt from Layla Stevens' video work, Their Sea is Always Hungry, This work is in Bahasa and is subtitled in English, which says, This is a line in the sea, where waters from two oceans meet, that flow deep and fast, creating hungry waves that eat up everything they can catch. This movement of water flows as a boundary between two islands, a geological rift that separates the flora and fauna of this earth. Ini adalah garis di laut di mana air dari dua samudra bertemu, yang dalam dan mengalir deras, membuat ombak-ombak lapar, memakan segala yang ditangkapnya. Gerakan air ini mengalir menjadi perbatasan dua pulau, keterpisahan geologi, yang membagi flora dan fauna di bumi ini.